This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, director Adam Davidson will discuss how his student film The Lunch Date went on to win an Academy Award for Best Short Film and how that short film led him to some wild adventures with Oscar-winning director Milos Forman. We'll learn all about this unproduced project where Milos Forman collaborated with a young film student, Adam Davidson, through a wild journey across Japan. Adam Davidson has directed some of the most popular television shows, such as True Blood, Entourage, Fear the Walking Dead, United States of Terra, Hung, Suits, Masters of Sex, and most recently, the Showtime original series I'm Dying Up Here, which is executive produced by Jim Carrey, as well as the upcoming CBS drama series Wisdom of the Crowd, starring Jeremy Piven. We'll discuss all about the ups and downs of a career as a director and an in-depth conversation about producing a short film focused on his Oscar-winning short, The Lunch Date. There's a link to The Lunch Date within the podcast description. I encourage everyone to click on the link, watch the film, and come back and listen to the podcast, where you'll have a clear understanding of how this amazing short was put together, which was filmed at Grand Central Station in New York City. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions. You can like us on Facebook, Jog Road Productions. Don't forget to subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube to watch some of our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Ewan McGregor, and Greta Gerwig, among many others. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes. And you can also write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join. Oscar-winning director Adam Davidson for an in-depth conversation on the making of his Oscar-winning short film, the ups and downs of a career as a director, his wild adventures with Milos Forman, and the craft of a director working in television. So I was curious, you know, I was able to watch your short film, The Lunch Date, and, um, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, it looked like the a film of a really mature filmmaker, but you made that... When uh, when you were in college, were you in grad school or were you an undergrad? Yeah, I was in in grad school. I just gotten out of college. It was my first film. It was. A, I mean, you were working in Grand Central Station. It. Uh, I mean, it seems like a pretty big production. I mean, it was. <laughs> you know, I mean, at that time, you know, it wasn't yeah. as easy in in that, at that period to yeah. make a film. There weren't HD cameras. Everything was on film itself. Yeah, sometimes it's good to go into things a little bit naively and not know <laughs> because <laughs> you might not think yourself out of something. But uh, uh, yeah, that was um, uh, at the time I was at. Uh, Film School at Columbia in New York. Um, and I uh, uh, had been seeing how, um, well, one of the re- requirements to, to graduate was you could either direct a short or a film um, or write a screenplay. And, you know, um, I was there, you know, um, wanting to be a director. So um, I was interested in, in, in making a film, but I had saw that a lot of my uh, uh fellow classmates, um, fellow students at the school, I should say, because it was really the older classmates that I was looking at, uh, were doing very ambitious um, shorts that were 35, 45 minutes long and costing a lot of money. And um, uh, I, one, didn't feel comfortable with like just jumping into that. 
Um, I we in the beginning at, at film school you were shooting on we were shooting on video, uh, and um, so I was very eager to to shoot some film, yeah. but I didn't feel like I wanted to just go straight to like doing a expensive short. And the other thing I felt, you know, quite honestly, was that these films that were coming out were um, technically ambitious, and, and many of them very beautifully, uh, beautiful looking and all that, but they weren't really about anything. And I wanted to kind of teach myself, let me backtrack, I shouldn't say they weren't about anything, but I saw that they were very ambitious and, and um, technically proficient, but that it was just hard to tell a story. And I felt that I wanted to try my first time shooting film, just trying to tell a simple story, just a, a 10 minute short. And at the time when I first started out, I actually intended on telling a silent story. I wanted to, to try to make a, see if I could tell a story with just images. Right. And um, at the last minute, uh, I decided to add sound because I didn't want actors. I wanted the film to be very naturalistic and I didn't want actors having to pantomime uh, or indicate what what they couldn't say. Yeah, sort of so, overcompensate for not having dialogue. Exactly, exactly. So I just added a little bit of dialogue. But, um, uh, and I wrote this basically on a, on a napkin when I first kind of came up with what I was gonna do. Um, and was it in Grand Central Station at that point? It was always, yeah, I was always conceiving of Grand Central Station. Um, the, uh, um, at the time, HBO was holding a contest for both NYU students and Columbia. They were going to finance uh, a couple shorts from each school. Uh, uh, they were uh, student films. They are going to finance some short student films. And so, of course, everybody was <laughs> <laughs> submitting scripts because, you know, and at Columbia, there, there was no financing for your, your work. If it was you just were, your tuition that you would pay for. Yeah. When you would. And, 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 uh, uh, cause some of the schools help you actually get your short off the ground. You had to self finance your, your project. But, uh, what Columbia, this was Columbia's rules at the time. If it was a thesis mm -hmm. film, uh, at a certain point, they would, uh, you, you would present something, even it, whether at the script stage or, you know, if you had shot something and they could give you money. But I wasn't, this wasn't going to be my thesis film. So uh, I submitted this, you know, again, because I said I was just going to, basically I was doing this as just a little um, uh, experiment for myself. Can I tell? Yeah. You didn't have story? any ambition beyond that. It was just going to be. No, something. I just wanted to see if I could put two pieces of film together and, and to make those two shots tell a story. You know what I mean? And then add another shot and another shot. Um, and to be quite honest, I also, you know, yes, the, the story itself had something to say. You know, I was definitely mindful of like wanting, you know, uh, having seen a lot of shorts in, in school, just I, I, I appreciated the ones that had something to say. Uh, uh, um, because those are also the, the movies that inspired me were always about something, uh, more than just entertainment. Um, and one of the reasons why I chose going to New York and, uh, you know, because uh, at the time I felt like the serious filmmakers are, are all in New York or they're in 
in Europe, and New York's one step closer <laughs> to, to Europe than I am here in Los Angeles, you know. Um, and uh, uh, so, um, uh, of course, my script on a napkin was rejected. and um, Rejected by the HBO. By the HBO people, contest. Yeah. And I, I had shown the, the, the script to uh, one of my professors uh, just on the side, and, and you know, he said, you, you should make it. Uh, and I thought about it. He said, you should make it anyway. I thought, you know, I think he's right because I just really want to, like, experiment and, and get something under my belt before making a, a thesis. So I kind of looked at it, and I was like, okay, 10 minutes. I can keep my costs down. Uh, um, uh, I went and I sold my motorcycle, and I took money out of savings. And I had, at the time, I was... All the way through high school, I was like working on movie sets. I just wanted to be around. I wanted to learn everything that was going on. You were a PA or PA, yeah. yeah. I like office PA, um, standing out, uh, you know, locking up traffic, uh, cleaning up toilets for the art department, uh, uh, holding a boom on AFI films, like anything. I just wanted to be. Because I grew up here in LA, so that's you know I knew some people who were doing like uh, uh, AFI projects. You know, I just wanted to be around it and learn and see what everybody did. Um, and it was really that 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 led me because I the one. I'm sorry to jump around. Oh no, but, um, no One of the um, uh, I worked for Roger Corman Studios, and uh, I worked for the art department. And at one point, they had left this um it was a killer cockroach movie and the, the, there was a set that they just they had used real bugs and they like never cleaned it up and i had to go and clean it up and like literally like it was a kitchen set and i like opened this one pot and there were maggots crawling and i, I almost heaved for a second but i was like i'm making a movie <laughs> and i was like you know what if i can yeah. if i if i enjoy like I just want to if be around. If you enjoy the it. worst of it, then you would be yeah. Like along I knew, for the like I, in a way. whatever it is, I'm yeah. happy to be here. If this is all that happens, I'm just want to be around this. You know what I mean? So, um, so back to New York. I was like, okay, now I'm going to venture making my own short. And boy, to my teacher gave me that advice. Like, why don't you just do it? And I was like, great, great idea. I sold my motorcycle, took money out of savings. I hit up all those DPs that I had worked with on crews and said do you have any short ends at the time when you shoot 35 millimeter films you know you're you can only have a certain uh size reel inside your cameras and so um rather than going to another rather than letting the film roll out in the middle of a take they would you know break the 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 roll and uh uh it's sort of like the leftover film they it's have the it's the film that yeah. they're the leftover because um you know you don't want to like um stop in the middle of a take and so you got this leftover film but that was a commodity and there was this guy in new york it was it was the funniest thing you'd call him up and he'd meet you on a street corner and you'd you could give him short ends and he'd trade you for other short ends or whatever and so i had all these short ends and i traded it in for 16 millimeter film black and white which is what i you know shot the movie on um and so uh uh, at the time, Grand Central was uh, privately owned. 
uh, by Metro North. And I went to them, you know, basically saying I'm a student, you know, I don't have any money. Is it ever possible to shoot in Grand Central? And they said, you know, uh, they, they said, yes, you can, but under three conditions. Number one, you can only shoot between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. because it's in between rush hours. Uh, which is well, not long, you know, for yeah. <laughs> a, sh a film shoot. So I figured, okay, I'll need two days of that then. And then uh, uh, they said you cannot plug in a light. If you plug in a light, then you're going to have to pay one of our electricians to stand by the plug, and they're 15 bucks an hour. And I was like, I can't afford that. <laughs> so, okay, I want to plug in a light. And then the last thing they said, you know, please don't show or say anything about the homeless. So I kind of lied about that one <laughs> because at the time there was a big homeless problem all over New York City and, and, and hundreds of homeless yeah. people this were living in. This was the late in, 1980s in, at yeah, that point, yeah. Grand Central. Um, so uh, so they gave me permission. And uh, then the next thing I needed to do was find, you know, I knew I needed a, uh, a restaurant that had a row of booths um, to be able to tell the story of her sitting at the wrong booth. and. I was my own location scout, so I was like scouring all the streets of Manhattan for days. And finally, I was um, walking along 43rd Street right across from the New York Times, and there was a, a bar that was open, but next to the bar was a boarded up uh, former business, and it looked like a restaurant. And so I could, there was you know, through the plywood cracks, I could kind of look in and, and see that there was some booths and some things. And so I went to the bar and I said, you know, do you happen to know who who owns that space? And he's like, well, it's part of our thing, the bartender. You know, you can go in right through this door here and check it out. And so I came into the bar and I went in the door and it was this closed down old diner looking place that looked like there was a fire at some point, probably an insurance fire. The the ground was soaking wet. The the what do you call those panels like down the ceiling? The cottage cheese ceiling. Oh yeah, the, the uh, uh, yeah I know what you're talking about. Yeah, just it's like, like that. that cheap like asbestos kind of. Yeah, it's like what's what yeah. our, right now we're breathing in asbestos. Oh. No, <laughs> no, it's like you know the the cardboard whatever yeah. that board well, is popcorn. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, and it was like yeah. falling down, and there was pretzel carts everywhere. People were storing, the guys who like did sold New York pretzels were storing their carts there. And it was a mess, but it had a row of booths and, you know, they weren't using it. So I figured maybe I can get it for a good price. And I got it for like $500 or something like that for the day for shooting, which for me was a lot, but, <laughs> uh, uh, um, but I got permission and, um, uh, we then, um, what I did was I went and I watched, I spent an entire day in Grand Central just watching the light to see when the sun came through the big windows because I loved that famous Alfred Stieglitz photograph of the, like, the sun coming in. Yeah. and the That really defines the look of Grand Central. Yeah, in a way. right? Yeah. But I couldn't afford to light that. <laughs> I had to use the sun. So I just timed my shoot around when the sun would be that coming through there um and i traded in the, the 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 short ends for the fastest black and white film stock i could get um i uh 
I had always wanted to shoot it in black and white. I felt like like the story is about black and white, and I wanted it to have this kind of timeless period like feel to it. And I also knew that without in, in low light situations, because I wasn't going to be able to light Grand Central. I felt like black and white would be more forgiving. Yeah. That if I used color, it would get kind of you know the color. And you have that great contrast in the film. I yeah, think it works really well. The color color film in low light would just it would look all washed out and brown, and I didn't want to do that. So I opted for black and white, and then, and then the only thing I was able to get, um, uh, Columbia let me use like the worst cameras because it wasn't an official thesis. They let, let me have access to like the worst camera they had on the in the um, small equipment room that we had at the time. And were you the DP or did you no. have a set? So I got uh, uh, I found somebody who could DP it, uh, uh, and he recommended these lenses, fast, getting super fast lenses, and that was my biggest expense on the on the shoot was these ran all of these these two lenses that I had. <laughs> um, uh, we had a very minimal crew um, uh, you know it was a camera there was a western dolly I had a one sound man who was both operating the Nagra and doing boom it almost looked like a documentary shoot in a way but I think that helped us because Nobody really noticed us, so I got all those free extras. You know, I just let people yeah. do what they were doing. You know, um, as a side note, it's kind of funny because you know New Yorkers at the time used to have a bad reputation. You know, as being very kind of you know standoffish and brusque, and you know, um, you know the famous joke of how many how many New Yorkers does it take to screw in a light bulb? None of your fucking business. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, uh, every time, what I originally thought what I wanted to do was do this like a long tracking shot when she entered Grand Central. Um, I didn't want to say what happened to her lost wallet. So I staged it so it was this long take where she came into Grand Central, um, st you know, go past the homeless guy is you know i don't know if you clocked it but there's like a little um glimpse of the guy she eventually sits yeah. in uh, the booth with like he's looking for change in a in a uh, vending machine <clears throat> um she stops she looks at the board uh to see check her train uh track starts heading towards the tracks and walks into a medium shot and i wanted her to drop the wallet out of the camera's view so that then when she bumped into the guy all in one take and her stuff went on the ground and they started to pick it up, you would never, like, see what, what happened to the wall. Like, where did it Have disappear? you rehearsed or storyboarded any of this going in? or? Uh, it was so long ago. Uh, I might have... I don't know if I storyboarded. I mean, if it... I mean, sometimes I drew little drawings, so I might have done that. Um, I honestly can't remember. Yeah. I did not rehearse it because I didn't have the actors until the day I was shooting. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm somehow, faintly in my memory, I can imagine like you know, like the yellow legal pad of some squares, but I don't know. I don't know if I drew that for 
everything. Uh, uh, so what, my, what I was going to tell you as an anecdote was I did this several times, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody seemed to notice the camera, all the, all the New Yorkers in Grand Central. Instead, quite a few of them said, hey, lady, you dropped your wallet. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was purposely dropping it, you know, out of camera. Yeah. And one woman, in fact, I was shooting a take, and we were coming there, and she dropped the wallet out of camera, and then the, uh, uh, just before the guy bumped in there, this woman came out of nowhere and punched my actress in the arm and said, <laughs> you, you dropped your wallet back there. <laughs> You're like, no, we're shooting. Oh, she didn't even see us, you know. Um, That's what's great about New York. You know, yeah. People are just... They're doing their own thing, exactly. And because we didn't have... Because I couldn't afford to have an electrician stand by a plug, we didn't have lights, right? We were yeah. shooting available light. Um, did you feel really comfortable making the film? I mean, were, were you nervous at all, or did it feel like you were kind of at home being on set in a way? Great question. Um... The night before I started shooting, I got like a hundred and five fever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was purely psychosomatic. I would think I was very, very nervous going into it. Though once, I, I was always directing stuff, you know, as a kid, like making little shorts, like just myself, yeah. with a little Super 8 and things like that. Once I was actually in the mode of like, we're doing this, I, the fever went away. So, um, it's sort of like the anticipation, the, the nerves of it in a sense. Yeah. Kind of, would I, could I pull this off? Do I know what I'm doing? Um, uh, uh, how, you know, and it was my own money, you know, and it was all, all those things, you know, and this was also, you know, it was my dream, so it's like when you're like suddenly facing, you know, the, like, what if this is all wrong, you know? That was scary. The idea of failure was, was scary. Well, I noticed but, in the uh, the special thanks section of the yeah. film, Ralph Rosenblum is listed in there, the famous editor of Annie Hall and yeah. so many Woody Allen movies. Yeah. Was he teaching at Columbia yeah. at the time? that's a great story, too. So, so Ralph was teaching at Columbia. And um, uh, I had him as an editing teacher around the time that I was uh, uh, cutting the film. Um, and uh, uh, I needed to get a grade. So, <laughs> so I showed him the, the film because I can't remember. I, I, I think I can't remember if it was just a class, like a seminar class or you were we're actually cutting stuff. Doesn't matter. Um, I, I, um, when I wrote the film, uh, I really wanted to make a point. You know, I think I wanted to make maybe too many points. Uh, and one of the points I wanted to make was that uh, uh, people don't change. And so when I, sh and the way I wrote it and the way I shot it was that after this experience of in the uh, diner where she realizes, you know, her mistake, she came back into Grand Central and walks by a homeless person who's begging for money and turned to him and said, I had her do a couple different things. I had her say, like, 
get a job or get away from me or, you know, uh, like, and I just wanted to say, see, people, yeah. even after, you know, people don't change. So what I wasn't prepared for, and I shot the Grand Central stuff before I shot the scene in the diner. When, when I got the two actors together, and that's kind of an amusing story too, the, the, the main actress, she was a New York stage actress, very good actor, Scotty Block. And, uh, uh, you know, I only interviewed her. I didn't audition her. I met her for a cup of coffee. Uh, and have you talked. seen her in a play at all? I've seen her in, in a play. Uh. And, uh, uh, um, you know, and it's always like a big favor. Like, do a student film like this, no money. <laughs> There's nothing, you know? Yeah, You're asking them for glamorous. their time. Yeah. Not, definitely not glamorous. We the, the third day, you know, because I had these two short days in Grand Central, and then my, on my third day, we went to the diner, and I could only afford to, you know, I told you about all the push carts and the burnt out ceiling and the water on the ground. I could only afford to dress the the, the one corner, the place where she would buy the salad, yeah. and then the, the, the row of booths. And so um, I was in there early just getting things ready, and she got there, and she, she pulled me aside and said, Adam, I, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. I said, what's wrong? She's, and she had this very worried look on her face, and she was looking around at the whole space, and she said, I don't think my character would eat in, this, in here. <laughs> <laughs> and she was exactly right. There's no way, you know, her character would. I had explained that all we're going to see is this one cleaned-up area, you know, so uh, it won't look like the, yeah. the shambles that it is. Um, but it wasn't until that morning at the diner that I actually had those two together, and we started... You know, uh, rehearsing and figuring out what will happen between them. And I thought, oh, this, this might work. This little connection between the two. Mm-hmm. And but what what I wasn't prepared for was I, you know, edited the film myself. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, uh, I was looking for a composer uh, to help me with with music. And uh, this wonderful um, young composer came in and watched the film and, and he thought of the Artie Shaw for the opening and then um, played me a Gershwin piece uh, for when they were um, sitting down. But it was a full orchestra and it sounded too big, too much. Uh, and he said, you know, what if we do it, it should just be me playing the piano and I'll get a violinist. And I was like, how much is that going to cost me? <laughs> but whatever it is, we worked it out. And he, 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 we recorded the music, and I, I put it in. And, you know, it, it, it was touching, you know, this connection these two make with the coffee and the, uh, uh, when he buys her, you know, surprises her and sits down with the coffee. And so I showed the entire uh, uh, short to, to Ralph, uh, which included this line at the end, you know, of like get a job or stay away from me or some harsh thing. I, had, you know, my youthful point <laughs> that I was trying to make. And Ralph said, you know, you, you, you can't, you know, you gotta end the film at the point where she dis- discovers. He's like, it's not, it doesn't work. Like end it right here after she makes the discovery and she laughs. And 
I fought him on it and I fought him on it and I fought him on it, you know, uh, uh, because I didn't want it. I didn't want to end it there. That felt too, uh, just ending it sentimentally, you know, to yeah. me. And, but, you know, it's Ralph Rosenblum, so it, obviously, you know, I needed to think about it and I went back and, and did you show the, the film to other people to kind of gauge their opinions as well or I mean I must have yeah it was a long time ago <laughs> now unfortunately I mean I probably should have written every single thing down that happened but um, the uh, uh, the point of this is that um, I realized you know when I got the music and and seeing that scene that and the reason why I'm telling you this uh, you know for people out there listening who, who are, are working on their own projects as a way of helping if this is helpful i realized watching it you know that that, that is a moving experience and and i was imposing as a writer i was imposing this ending of her not changing but really it if i'm letting the characters tell the story you can't it, that's why it wasn't landing because that wasn't true to who that character was at that point after an experience like that. And so, but I still didn't want to end it where Ralph was suggesting. Yeah. So I went back and I basically did a cheat. I stole a shot from the opening uh, where she's entering uh, and I picked up the tail end of her walking past the guy after she said the nasty comment so and started his voice like uh, overlapping as she's you know just the shot of her entering so it just looked like she was walking by him and and trying to ignore him as opposed to stopping to, to tell him to get a job yeah. and then ralph saw that and you know he's like that's better and then the film went and won awards and he said no that was the right ending. <laughs> he was very, you know, up until the last times I spoke to Ralph before he died, he would always talk about that. He wrote know. that excellent book on editing. Yeah, it's yeah. Really it's really something great. that's essential. It's great. Because uh, uh, that's where the movie's made. You know, it really is. And I've taken that idea and that, you know, all the way through everything I've done. I mean, you have to kind of... you. You know, watch what the film's telling you. Watch what the characters are, are telling you, you know. Uh, and it's tricky because if you want to do stuff where you're actually saying stuff, you know, it's yeah. like finding that balance so it, it's not just feeling like a polemic. Um, the other thing I'll tell your, your listeners out there about the film is that when I first finished it, um, you know, really the only thing to do with a short film is send it out to, to festivals if you wanted to get seen. You can't really sell it for distribution in any You could try. Way or, yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, there were a few places to do that. Um, but really, you want, you know, I wasn't even thinking that way. I was thinking more like, you know, putting it out there into the world and the place for shorts to be seen at that time was in, in festivals. That's who primarily showed them. Um, and, uh, uh, I sent it to like, you know, all these different film festivals, and it got rejected from every one, like six in a row. Uh, and I was pretty convinced that I'd made a bad movie. 
uh, in fact, one of the festivals, they called me to reject me. <laughs> and so I had the guy on the phone. I was like, listen, can I just ask you a question? You know, I, I'm just curious, like, you know, can you just tell me, like, what what, yeah. the, what the problem is? And he said, uh, oh, yeah. He said, well, well, you failed. You know, you, you, you shot the film in black and white. You used period music. Clearly, you were trying to make a period film, but all your extras are wearing contemporary costumes. <laughs> and I was like, uh-huh. I was like, that's, to myself, you know, that's so interesting because, you know, I thought it was pretty clear that I'm not trying to do a period film. It's It's got a nostalgic feel to it. It's a style choice, the black yeah. and white and the music. It's The music is, oh, because backing up to working with Thomas, my composer, at first I was... Uh, and we both discussed it. it was like let's let's play you know um, let's play dramatic music she's going into Grand Central she's a fish out of water you know let's make it this scary threatening place and it was like more like Philip Glass-esque kind of like rhythmic tension filled music and it wasn't working uh, uh, and then we tried this more like period uh, uh, kind of sweet, uh, uh, snappy music, yeah. uh, 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 Shaw music, and it worked. Be- and it's like, again, it's like, what is the film telling you? What's the story? You know, you're setting up to tell the story, but hopefully it tells you something back. As you're watching way. that raw footage, yeah. you have to kind of respond with, to it. With the footage, with the music, yeah. you know? It's two different stories. It wasn't that it was wrong, the Philip Glass. It just wasn't right. And now I could theorize why. You know what I mean? But when you're in it, you can't unless you try it. What, and what it was, I think, is that the scary music, the tension film music gave away what was going to happen. And it was better to more set the tone and mood of where she is when she first comes in, she's had this great day in New York, whatever, went shopping, saw her daughter or child who lives in New York, whatever the backstory is, she's on her way back home, and then boom, this thing happens, you know? So um, uh, so that was where the music came from. You know, it wasn't like, uh, and then it fit with the black and white, and, and, and she was a little bit of a, yeah. she was from another time in the sense of, you know, uh, you know, being somebody who uh, uh, was a fish out of water, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then it was like, and then, you know, thinking about, like, how many films these festivals see, where, of course, it's like they're watching 400, 500 submissions. I don't know how many. It's like it's hard to, to give each one the attention they need to probably understand but to me it was really interesting that like the whole point of the movie was about how we look at things yeah and he totally had seen it wrong so i still felt like okay i feel bad but at least i don't feel like maybe i wasn't making the worst movie in the world you know and then uh i can't tell you what happened because i I never changed a frame not one, I didn't change one thing in the film. So you were never like, well, I got rejected from these festivals. I have to change the movie. That never came I, to your mind at all. I wondered that. about that. Yeah. But what happened was it was like I didn't do that. And all of a sudden I started hearing from festivals and I started getting into festivals. Uh-huh. 
and what culminated was that um, the same professor who, who I had gone to and showed him the script, um, when I was done with the film, I showed him the film. And he watched it. He's a great guy, Wojtyl Jasny, wonderful director, Czech director, um, made these very poetic and political films in the in the 60s. And he was one of Milos Forman's mentors. And Milos had brought him to New York, brought him to Colombia to teach. Um, Wojta, uh, ever the optimist and, and you know fearless spirit, told me. I showed him the film and he said, you should enter it in con. And I said, Wait, I can't even get to the New Jersey <laughs> Blackwater Film Festival. Like, I'm not going to get into con, you know? And he's like, no, you should do it. I'm like, but I said, con is like, they'll only take, two, you know, they'll only accept prints. Prints were very expensive. They were like $1,000. I only had two of them, you know? Um, they'll only take that for submissions because other ones you could just send video. Send the video take, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I was like, "This is crazy." And he's like, "You must do it." And then the other thing, he, you know, he knew that I was always working on film sets, whatever I could find uh, to help get through school and to just get experience. And he knew this woman who needed someone to run a camera during um, auditions. Uh, uh, and he said, "You know, uh, I." I gave her the VHS tape that you you gave me, um, and you should call her, you know. So I did. I called her, and uh, she needed somebody, but she was about to leave for L.A., so she was going to call me when she came back. And then um, <clears throat> uh, a few weeks later, we were exchanging calls again, and then finally set up a time to meet, and then uh, she said, you know, I, I actually don't need anybody now, but, but I'd love to meet you. You know, uh, uh, and I watched your short. So um, uh, we arranged a time, and, and that day I was working on a, a TV commercial. I was doing craft services. And during our, 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 the lunch break, I, I ran over to meet this woman. And I didn't have money for a cab or anything like that. <laughs> I ran the, the however many blocks to this old warehouse on the west side of New York. And I came in, and there was a a uh, woman at the reception desk and um, I introduced myself and she said oh are you the person that, that um, made a short film that Diane's been showing everybody I said I don't know I said I made a short film but she's like and she started describing it black and white takes place in Grand Central I'm like yeah I don't know, that sounds like my film she's like yeah Diane's been showing everybody I think she even showed it to Peter Weir and I was like oh my gosh I didn't even realize it like she was, this was Diane Crittenden who was a casting director, uh, you know, casting Peter Weir's movie Green Card. Yeah. And this and was their production Dead office. Poet Society and he yeah. did so many films at that yeah. point. And I, I went up to see her and she was very nice and, and very apologetic. She said, you know, I'm so sorry. I know, I know you only have a few VHS tapes, but I don't have yours. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, I showed your film to Peter Weir, and uh, he loved it so much, he took it home to show Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> I was like, what? You know? I walked out of there on cloud nine, went back to my craft service job at, on the commercial, and a couple days later, um, 
I was at my other job, which was uh, I was just just to pay the bills. I worked at a at a health club, and I was selling memberships at a health club. And I was in the office, and the phone rang and said, "You don't pick up line, Adam. Pick up line, whatever." I picked it up, figuring it was like an in- incoming inquiry about memberships. And uh, on the other end, this, I hear this guy, young guy's voice, and he says, "Hi, uh, is this Adam? Uh, my name's Andy. I'm Peter Weir's assistant." I said, uh, yeah. He said, um, Gerard Depardieu wanted me to call you to tell you that uh, he's just nominated your film to con and you need to call this number. <laughs> and I was like... And now Ooh. you hadn't submitted the film yet, had you? Or? I had sent... Oh, you had sent, yeah. I, I, yeah, I should have said that. Like, upon Voigt's advice, I did send one of my two only prints to con. Uh, this was like, I sent it maybe... January or February, we're now talking like it's April or yeah. must have been it must have been like mid April. Uh, and she said, "Yeah, Gerard de Perdue, uh, uh He said Gerard de Perdue recommended your film. Uh, you need to call this this number." And I was like, "Who who is this?" Yeah, you know, I figured it's one of my friends from school because we were always doing like pranks and stuff on each other you know what I mean I'm like and it was pretty good because I didn't quite recognize the voice but maybe they got like somebody else to make the call or something like that he's like no no this is real you know call this number and I called it and it was a French film office in New York and the uh, woman answered the phone she said uh, oh yes we got the call from Gerard you know he went to see your film I said well actually I, I submitted the film months ago uh 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 you know, you have my print. She says, oh, it's it's in Paris? And I said, I hope so, you know. <laughs> she says, okay, I'll get back to you, you know. Next day she called me up and said, your film's in Cannes. Wow. Yeah. And, like, that was really, like, the wind started to shift because then it, like, it got into Cannes. When the student, around the same time, it, I had submitted it to the Student Academy Award. It won that. So when I went out for the Student Academy Awards, the guy running that, Rich Miller said, uh, you know, now that you've won Con and you've won this, your film's eligible for an Oscar, uh, you should submit it. I was like, no, man, I don't <laughs> want to do that. Like, this is already enough, you know. Uh, he's like, you know, you should really do it. Enough people told so me. So to submit it for an Oscar, did it have to play in theaters? or did It had it, to, uh... I can't remember the exact rules, but it had to, like, either play in theaters or have been submitted, have been entered and or won a major film festival or yeah. and competition. So uh, I guess those two things, the con and the Student Academy Award, made it eligible. Uh, so, And leading up to the Academy Awards, so you find out you get nominated and then you, know, you get to go. So, that, I mean, that's such an incredible journey from being rejected from six festivals. Right. And, you know. <laughs> so... Persevere, I tell, you, I tell your listeners, persevere. What's, uh, when you won that Oscar, I mean, did it feel like you had made it in a sense? Did it feel like everything was going to be smooth sailing from that point on? Or? It, it felt like the scariest thing in the world to me because it wasn't like I was, uh, it felt like all too much too fast. You know what I mean? Like literally as I, you know. As I told you, I was really just trying to put two pieces of film together. Yeah, and this wasn't even your thesis. It film. wasn't this even was my just, thesis. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I, it wasn't like I had a stack of scripts that I was like, okay, here are the features I want to do. Like I wasn't even there yet. I was still thinking I got to go back to school and do my <laughs> thesis. 
Um, and uh, um, it, it, I felt like, uh, first of all, and I was also right around this time blessed by the fact that right around the time that my film got into Kong, Columbia had an annual screening of uh, best, the best thesis films. And it was called Symphony Space, and it was a way of bringing awareness to the school, and I think they even raised some money. It was, a, you know, the public was invited. They'd show these thesis shorts, and they usually try to get some celebrity or drag somebody there to, you know, help promote the event. And uh, my film wasn't a thesis, but there was a new dean who had seen the short, and when it got in a con, he was like, let's put it in. The, the screening, you know, uh, and uh, uh, so they did, and I went to Symphony Space, and um, they had brought in Milos Forman to be the the kind of host of the of the evening. You know, he made some speech and introduced yeah. the the films, and uh, uh, so my film showed right before intermission, um, and it got a very good response. And um, I was standing out in the lobby in intermission, uh, and this man approached me uh, with this wonderful uh, cherub smile, and he was just very, you know, European gentleman with a Viennese accent, and he said, "Yo, your film is wonderful. You know, I'm Robbie Lance. I'm Milos's agent." And I said, oh, you know, I'd really like to meet him. You know, I've been, he's a hero of mine. Um, in fact, you know, he was one of the co-chairs of the school at Columbia, but he was never there when I was there because he was off making movies. So he was just the name on the door. He never taught any classes. Never taught, <laughs> not when I was there. There was no classes or anything. He was just the name on the door. And uh, my good friend in film school was Greg Matola, who directed Day Trippers. And yeah, I saw he yeah. was a grip on uh, Lunch Date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he worked his way up from grip. Um, <laughs> we had once like made a, a cardboard cutout, life-size cardboard cutout of Milos for the Christmas party, so that you could get your picture taken <laughs> with him, because he was never there. So, so Robbie brought me over to this corner where where Milos was was standing and introduced me and said, you know, this is the young man that made that film. And Milos turned to me and said, uh, you made that film? I said, yes, sir. He tapped me on the shoulder and he said, good job. <laughs> I was like, I walked out of there on cloud <laughs> nine, you know. Uh, 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 so I came back from um, Khan and I got offered a TV show to direct. And this was before the Oscars had this is, gone down at that this point. This was before yeah. the Oscars. Uh, uh, there was a show that was out of New York, and they were like totally low budget, and it was um, they were just I guess hiring anybody, <laughs> um, or they were hiring non-union directors. And I mean, this was like a dream come true, right? I'd been on. I was still happy doing whatever on Corman shoots, just being part of it, and now someone's giving me a chance to direct a professional directing job and and I read it and it wasn't a great script but you know what it was going to be a chance to do you know get paid to, to direct and 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 they told me that I could 
have a lot of freedom. I could shoot it the way I wanted it. I could cast it the way I wanted it. And I said, okay. And and they called me up the next day, and they were like, you know, what do you think of uh, Morton Downey Jr.? I don't know if you know who that is. He was a television personality, almost like r- saying Rush Limbaugh. You know what I yeah. mean? Or what do you think of Bill O'Reilly? <laughs> Right, <laughs> it was like that kind of guy, a political kind of you know, uh, uh, spin doctor. And um, I said, oh, you know, not much, you know. And they're like, well, you know, uh, I said, you know, he's amusing. And they said, well, uh, we're gonna have him star in your episode. I was like, well, can he act? And they said, no, we don't care. You know, it was uh, you know. Uh, uh, we just think it'd be great to have in it. And I was like, I didn't even, I didn't even think it. it just came out of me. Sorry, I don't think I can do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, what did I just do? <laughs> I was, someone was giving me a chance to direct my first time ever professionally directing, and I just <laughs> said no and turned it down. I'm gonna get blackballed. I'm gonna be like on the on a blacklist, you know. No one's gonna ever want to hire me for anything. I'm gonna get a reputation. I called up Greg. I was like, "Look, well, you don't believe what I just did." Literally, like the next day, out of the blue, I got a call from Milos Forman saying, uh, "Do you want to talk about doing a project together?" Wow. And I went over to his apartment, and uh, uh, he uh, uh, I came in. And, you know, he was like standing there in socks and smoking a cigar. And <laughs> come in, come in. And he's like, "Do you want a cigar?" And I was like, "Yeah," because I figured if nothing comes of it, I could say, "Hey, I once smoked a cigar <laughs> with Milos Forman." Yeah. Uh, and I came into his um, like living room area of his apartment, and uh, 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 he started to to talk, and he wasn't making any sense. He said, uh, "You know, I'm thinking. You know, there's this." Um, you know, I don't know how you say, uh, you, know, you know, I just, uh, well, uh, let, let me show you, let me show you. And he put on this uh, clip of a 60 Minutes piece that was shot in uh, uh, the hills of Mount Fuji at this school called Kanrisa Yose Gako School for Managers, which had nicknamed itself Hell Camp and was modeled after the kamikaze training camps. And it was a place where companies would send their employees to make them better managers. And if they didn't pass, they were fired from their companies. And these guys would be told like the night before, you're going to hell camp. They'd have to show up, get into the uniform. They were each given 20 ribbons. They were called ribbons of shame. And they had to get rid of each one within the, the two weeks. And they were like on their knees crying. They were up in the morning with like the sunrise, like doing calisthenics, doing these crazy drills, uh, uh, memorizing these uh, uh, 10 commandments of salesmanship. And, you know, and it- Were these American companies? You know, no, it was Japanese companies. Japanese companies. companies. Japanese right. companies. Um, and it looked like some kind of brainwashing going on. You know, it looked really scary. And the tape ended, and I turned to Milos, and I said, uh, you want me to do that, don't you? And he said, no, I was just thinking, you know, do you think there's a story in there, a movie in there? I said, I don't know, you know, but uh, there's only one way to find out. You got to, like, go through it, and I'd do that. I'd go through that. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> we went out to dinner, 
And the whole time I didn't eat one thing because I'm like, what did I just say I would do? You know, I don't know this guy, Neil's Roman. I mean, I love his movies, but how do I know he's not going to leave me there? Or like, maybe he's got like this, like, a, you know, secret idea to like write a movie about a young, impressionable film student who follows him to Japan and like, you know, will, you know he's... So at the end of the, the meal, Milos was like, when can you let me know for sure? I said, just just give me 24 hours, you know. And I went home and I didn't sleep at all that night because I'm thinking, like, this doesn't make any sense, you know. Milos can have any writer in the world, you know. I'm like a film student who wrote a 10-minute short that has three lines of dialogue in it. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know. I just it, it didn't all make sense so I called him the next day and said can we, can we meet one more time and I went to see him and I said you know you know Milos I have to be honest with you you know I don't know anything about business that's a school for businessmen I don't know anything about Japan all I can tell you is I really like sushi I'd love to see sumo wrestling and I'm curious what geisha women really are and he said, that's perfect. <laughs> we'll go, we'll find out. Ten days later, I'm on a plane with him. Wow. We're financed by TriStar, flying to... So he has the, development money for this film. He had development wow. money. Uh, we uh, uh, land in Tokyo. He had found that there's a Czech restaurant. There was a Czech restaurant in Tokyo, so was, we had to try that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, Czech food, even in Czechoslovakia, <laughs> isn't like gourmet. So it was interesting. Uh, and uh, uh, we, um, uh, uh, the Czech Republic, I should say, not Czechoslovakia. But um, uh, the next day we went and met the heads of the school. Um, and I had to promise them that I would treat this seriously like a real manager. And uh, 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 then I got, we got on a bullet train, headed out towards uh Fujinomiya, the little town below Mount Fuji. Drove up to the gates of the camp. Milos dropped me off. He went and stayed in a hotel, and I went <laughs> to help camp and uh, and uh, did the two weeks. Wow, that's there. amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, were you, uh, that must have been like a very traumatizing or crazy experience to go through that. It was that. definitely like, uh, you know, not like anything I'd ever experienced. Uh, but, but yet, in some ways, there were some things that, you know, uh, you know, I, uh, there were some things, it, it was crazy, it was hell, but it, there were some things that were, like, you know, um, uh, amazing about it, too. You know, I was very conscientious and worried that, like, these guys wouldn't like me, you know, and and at first they weren't talking to me at all. I only later found out that they weren't talking to me because they were too embarrassed that their English wasn't good enough. Uh, uh, and But there were these things where, like, you know, we had to, um, you know, the, the, the motto in Japan is any nail sticking out is hammered down. You're not supposed to stand out from the crowd. You know, you're supposed to be with Very the group. Very and yeah. yeah. And so, but this was a school that was trying to teach you to be a manager, too. So you had to, like step up and lead a little bit and one of the things we had to do was like we had to get out of our uniforms and we had to change in the suits and they brought us down to town and we had to stand on one end of the platform and sing this song across the platform 
I mean, I can still, to this day, like, Harui Mao Nao Toku, Kaze because it's like I heard it so many times, you know. Uh, and it was called the Sales Growth Song, that these guys would just be crying when they sang it, because the words were, if they produce goods with their hands, with tears in their eyes and sweat on their brow, then you must go out and sell their goods with tears in your eyes and sweat on your brow. But for me, it's like, I don't know anybody in Japan. I don't care. I'll just sing this, <laughs> you know. But it was hard for the, the Japanese. But then there were other things that were... But at the end of that, did you like report back to Milos, I see a movie in this, I can write a screenplay um, for you? Yeah. So Well, first of all, there was a funny incident that... Because Milos would come by every once in a while and just make sure I was still alive, you know. <laughs> and then there was this funny incident where one of the ribbons was uh, letter writing. And every night we had to um, write a letter to our CEO thanking them for sending us to hell camp, you know. And it was done on carbon paper. So one copy went in the mail or mine got handed to Milos and the other uh, uh, they supposedly read. And But when I'd get it back, it was just red markings like on the side, like, I, you know, about my margins not being correct or not skipping a line or something like that. I was like, oh, they're not reading this. I'm writing in English. They don't know, you know. So I was like, I'm just going to have a little fun with Milos. And I uh, one time wrote this story. I just made up a story, and I was like, to tease Milos, you know. Also, I was going on four hours of sleep, so it was like punchy <laughs> as hell. And I said, you know, Milos, thank you so much. You know, you're a great CEO of our great company, and thank you so much for sending me here to be a better manager. You know, uh, uh, now I know why. Uh, you sent me here. I remember when we landed at Narita uh, uh, and we got off the airplane, we were walking across the tarmac. You can't walk across the tarmac. You were walking across the tarmac and suddenly you stopped and you bent down and you reached out and you picked up a rock from the ground and you held it out in your hand to me and you said, Adam-san. I mean, I'm doing my best Japanese, you know? Adam-san, remember, a rock is only a rock when you hold it in your hand. Otherwise, it's just a piece of the ground. Now I know what you meant by that, uh, Foreman-san. If I was going to be a great manager for our great company, I had to be led by you, you know, to be, you know, become a rock and, we, I don't know what, just went on and on, bullshit, ha, ha, ha. You know, folded it up, sent it. Um, thinking me I should have a laugh. The next day, we're, like, doing all our drills out in the quad, running from this thing to that thing, trying to get our ribbons taken off, when suddenly they called the whole school together. And the head of the school got up, and uh, I had a person who was helping me, was, like, translating. He was a guy who worked at the school. His, his, his qualifications was that he spent a month in California. <laughs> so he never, never understand every word. But he came over to me and started translating and the, the head of the school got up there and he said you know as you know we have a very uh, uh, we have a unusual student with us who's come from far away and uh, his uh, CEO is this very important man who made great movies that have won Oscars and uh, uh, we'd now like to read you some important advice that he gave <laughs> and they read the letter <laughs> <laughs> so, long story short, I got out of hell camp. I ended up graduating third in the school. Don't ask me how I pulled that off. We went and saw sumo wrestling. We both fell in love with sumo wrestling and kind of instantly came up with a story 
Because at the time we were there, this guy Kanishki was a 576-pound Hawaiian-born Samoan uh, uh, wrestler. Uh, his pictures were plastered all over the place, not because he had won a tournament, but because he had just gotten engaged to this beautiful Japanese model. And we thought, like, well, what if some kid back in, overweight kid back in Brooklyn, like, sees this picture and goes, we wait a minute, I don't have to lose weight, you know? I'll go to Japan. I'll become a, look at these girls. You know, your hero's there, you know? Uh, um, uh, but we didn't want to tell just a Rocky story. So we spent, like, weeks. We left Japan, we came back. We were in his apartment for weeks just trying to come up with some other story and seeing if we could come up with the hell camp angle. And couldn't really figure it out. And then I'll never forget one day we're just sitting there, you know, like you and I are staring at each other. And uh, Milo says, oh, my God, Adam son, you know, we're in trouble. We, you know, we spent all this money from the studio, you know, we don't have an idea. I'm going to have to go back to them and tell them, you know, sorry, we wasted your, your money and your time. And I thought, oh, my God, I got to come up with something quick, you know. And I went home that night, and I came back the next day, and I said, uh, all right, I don't know, let me pitch you something, you know, I don't know if this is anything, but one of the things I've, that struck me at the Hell Camp was it felt like all the examiners were these young, uh, attractive girls, and uh, uh, I, my theory is that it's, you know, Japan's a very misogynistic society. Like they have these, you know, company executives on their knees doing this, you know, the Ten Commandments of salesmanship, you know, or, or singing sales crow song with tears. And the girls, without any change of expression on their face, would just say, fail, next, right? I thought, what if a, a young guy gets brought to, to Tokyo, you know, by his company? And meets a meets a girl in Tokyo and falls for her, you know, and then she disappears, and he tracks her down and she's working at this health camp as an examiner, and the only way he can get to her is by enrolling in the camp, uh, and so that's where we kind of started off. We wrote this comedy that was, you know, it was very charming and uh, uh, really a love letter to Japan, uh, um, and and had both sumo and hell camp in it this guy gets sent to this guy uh catches his wife cheating on him dylan walsh his wife was uh um gonna be played by um uh, uh um marissa tomei oh wow yeah and uh uh he gets sent to japan and she leaves him and he's like heartbroken on the plane you know, sitting there, and all of a sudden he hears, "Hey, excuse me, you're not going to eat that." You know, he looks over and there's this big guy. <laughs> you know, I'm in training, so if you're not going to eat that, you know, I need to like bulk it up. So, gives it to this guy, and it's this kid. Turns out he's going over to Japan to become a sumo wrestler. He doesn't know anything about sumo, um, but they become friends, and then uh, Taylor falls meets this girl, falls for her, goes, you know chases after her at the hell camp and she's engaged to the head of the the school um 
and uh, we were all set to go. We wrote two drafts of it. We were greenlit. We were starting to build sets. Um, we went out to do casting in both, you know, New York, L.A., and we get, went out to Japan to start picking our little Japan locations. You know, we were going to shoot the Hell Camp, but we had Tokyo locations. We were casting all the Japanese characters, and we ran into political trouble in Japan. Uh, long story short, um, uh, I think uh, Sony basically like stopped the movie from being made. The, and they, Sony had owned TriStar yes, at that time, yeah. yeah. And you know, it was this political thing because they had when they did, but TriStar, they were not. Um, they swore that they would never interfere with anything that was content oriented, and all of a sudden, here comes our script. And uh, uh, Akira Morita, the head of Sony, sent said, "Oh, I can help you get Sumo." And we're like, oh, no, we already got it because we met the Sumo Association and all they cared about was that we didn't put our cameras in the fire exits. And we got the word back from Marita, no, 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 I already sent your script to a very important man here in Japan. And he gave this script to this guy, Noboru Kojima, and I looked him up and he was like this right-wing, you know, historian who hated America. And... uh, uh, we got word back, and he was part of the Yokozuna committee. Yokozuna is the highest level a sumo wrestler can achieve, and it's based on more than wins loss records. It's based also on like does does this wrestler, does this you know, um, I don't actually wrestler, but this you know, person have the the qualities uh, of the godlike, you know, uh, uh, heroes of sumo, you know. So there's only like one or two Yokozunas at a time wrestling. And we got word back that uh, he read our script and he said it was like exactly like the American propaganda films made during World War II. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, we were blown away because it was like, if anybody looks bad in the movie, it's the Americans, you know? Uh, it's really a Valentine letter to Japan. So we go flying out to see him. And uh, we have this. Uh, dinner set up where we came to this restaurant and there was only one table in the whole restaurant. They only do one seating a night. It must have been like $3,000 a person. I have no idea. And we all had to sit in a specific order around the table according to hierarchy. And then, you know, Kojima came and we had some informal conversation. Then Milo said, Mr. Kojima, why won't you help us make this movie? And we thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he read a bad translation of the script or something. Yeah. In perfect English, he told us, I would help you make this film if your Japanese characters had been bigger stereotypes, if they'd been greater caricatures, because then people would know it's not real. And for Milos, that's the same kind of dogma here trying to make movies in communist Czechoslovakia, you know? And that was basically the beginning and the end. He wasn't going to change the script. And we couldn't shoot it somewhere else because we needed it to be about Japan. And a year, half of my life was just erased. And I wasn't allowed to show the script around or anything. So you couldn't even use it as a writing sample. No. Ah. Yeah. So talk about like the, uh, the hills and downs, and downs yeah. and the hills and valleys. 
So. Well, I noticed you maintained a relationship with Milos yeah. because you were the second unit director on Larry Flint and yeah. there were a couple other projects. Yeah, we're still friends, and then I've written some other. I did an adaptation for him of another novel uh, a few years ago, and yeah. So how did you eventually transition into directing TV. for TV? So what happened was, um, I, again, I, you picked it up exactly right. I wasn't allowed to show that as a writing sample. Um, Columbia accepted uh, the lunch date because what happened was I was now working with Milos when I, technically I was supposed to like be turning in my thesis, you know, and uh, so I was like, oh, it's okay, you know, I don't need my degree, you know, and they're like, well, but you need to turn your thesis. I'm like, no, it's you know. Uh, and they said, okay, well, w what if we accept the lunch date? And I said, okay. <laughs> um, they, uh, um, but I, I was in New York, um, you know, and I wanted to stay in New York. I loved it. And I started getting writing work. And, uh, and I was doing, like, some adaptations and then trying to develop my own stuff. And, uh, uh, and, and I was nice, too. I was getting some things sent my way, too. But none of it felt, I didn't resonate with any of the material. I was getting a lot of like kind of high concept Disney films. And I guess in a stubborn, youthful way, I just felt like, you know, what happened with the lunch date was definitely unique. You know, with my own money, in my own way, I set out to tell a story that I wanted to tell and I told it the way I wanted to tell it. And look what happened. Um, I don't want a movie to be just about that I do to just be about anything I really want it to be not that it doesn't have to have meaning like you know uh, it doesn't have to hit you over the head I just want to like care about it feel passionate about it um, and uh, 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 but what I wasn't prepared for you know I remember sitting there in film school and like uh, we'd have screenings of films and directors would come in and talk about them and they'd say, you know, it took us 10 years to make this movie, 15 years and I was like, why? We just go off and grab a camera and we, we go shoot something, you know? I started to see the, what happens, you know? It's like you'd get, I'd write a script, you know, get the producer involved, we'd start trying to set it up, try to get talent, talent has to read it, you gotta wait for them to respond before you can go to the next talent, you know? You get a little closer, all of a sudden a piece of talent falls through or the money falls through, a year goes by, and I'm like, how can I call myself a director when I haven't directed? I, you know, all I've been doing is doing meetings. And uh, uh, I got a call out of the blue from one of the producers on Law & Order who, um, said you know we're trying to get more new york directors in you know because we know they're here and you know one for financial reasons like they had to keep bringing people from la and then the cost of putting them up and all that but also just to to make this really a new york show are you are you interested and i went and met them and i wasn't sure if i wanted to do that but i just you know um was curious and uh they said, look, you know, if you really want to do this, what you have to do is, um, uh, you know, commit to observing an episode being put together. And if it goes well, if that goes well, then maybe if an episode happens to open up, we'll give you 
a chance to direct it. So, and it's unpaid. And I thought, you know what, uh, let me do it. Maybe I'll learn something. And so I, I did the observation at Ed Sharon, who was wonderful to so many people getting their careers started, uh, directing careers. I, you know, he was the one who I met with, and he invited me to come observe him putting an episode together, which I did with no guarantees. And it was about a year later, um, I had um, gone off and I raised the money myself to do this project called Way Past Cool, which was a script that Disney had sent me. Um, I had read the book and was and loved it, and then I couldn't believe that Disney had it. And when I read the Disney script, I was like, that's not the book. Um, but they agreed to kind of go back to some of the things the book had in it. I rewrote the script with the, I brought in the original novelist and it was about kids in, in Oakland and it was definitely not a Disney movie. Um, and they, uh, they put it in turnaround and I went and I, I raised the money for it and just shot it like as a $400,000 uh, indie. But I, all the money I raised, I put into the movie. So I was uh, broke. And that was your first feature film that was directing. First, yeah. uh. Um, which I totally, you know, I was definitely chasing after windmills, you know, to do a movie, a project that's all kids, there's no stars. You know, the challenge alone of, like, trying to shoot that as a feature, let alone then find distribution for it, um, uh, was hard. We get, you know, we got into a few festivals and we won the, the San Francisco Black Film Festival, which was, which was nice, um. But it was a tough movie, you know. It was like a movie about kids, but not necessarily for kids. Uh, although I think kids should should see it. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, I was broke because every penny I I raised, I put into the movie. And I got a call from Ed out of the blue saying that a director was falling out on Law and Order, and it would start it was starting in a week. And that I went and did that. Um, and uh, it was my first uh, time directing a TV show. Uh, I ended up getting nominated for it by the DGA and then never getting asked back to Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> so then I like had to learn that whole thing. Did you ever figure out why you were never no, asked back? No, never. Did. To this day, I don't know. <laughs> I, What's interesting about your TV directing career yeah. is that you've done a lot of comedy, yeah. half-hour comedy and one-hour drama, yeah. and most... TV directors like for example like James Burroughs he just does yeah. half hour comedy or yeah. Thomas Schlamme just does one hour drama yeah. how did you develop that path to be able to do both it, it wasn't easy and and um, uh, I mean not, not that anything in this business is I mean even you know just there's no rhyme or reason to anything and I always like I don't like giving advice to only because I don't like to be held responsible but um <laughs> I feel like if anything, like just know that like there's not one path way to go. There's lots of paths, you know. Uh, and and um, I when I I started uh, after the um, first Law and Order, I uh, uh, you know then went and got. I didn't have a TV agent. I got a TV agent. It was like started from scratch. I did meetings. Uh, it took a while to get another show. Then it took it longer to get the next show, and then it was just kind of like that way. But I was very mindful of like how you can get pigeonholed as a director, and and I would get it because like 
I went and did some cable early on, and then you would hear from, like, to go back to network, they'd say, well, but he's a cable person. And you're like, no, I've already done network. And you have to go meet and kind of, you know, fight for the job again and explain who you are. And then you do the network again, then you got to go convince the cable people that, no, you can do <laughs> cable. And it was the same way with, with comedy. I mean, I was, the first little films I was doing were comic films. It just so happened that my TV, the first TV idea was straight trauma. But I think what happens... I don't think it's out of anything malicious. I just think it's, you know, people, uh, uh, it's so much easier to say no in this business than yes. And that it's just people want the easy thing. So it's like when they see your work and it matches up with something, it's just easier to go, oh, put them in that. And it needs people to take a chance on you. And so what happened for me was, um, uh, I had met the Russo brothers, uh, one of the Russos, Anthony, uh, socially, uh, and uh, we had a very nice conversation. And short time after, I noticed that uh, I saw that they had a pilot picked up, and I just wrote them a thank you. No, oh, not sorry. Let me back up. I saw one of their pilots got picked up, and I wrote them a congratulations email on the very last minute before I was going to send it. I was like, you know what? What do I have to lose? I wrote at the end, P.S. I don't know if you know, but I've been directing some hour television. Can I ever send you anything? And they wrote me back right away, and they said, yes, please do. And I sent them my stuff, and they gave me a chance. They gave me an episode to direct. And it was early on in the, uh, in the show's life. It was the show LAX. And literally, I'm like, like there on day two. And they weren't still sure what to do with the show or how to shoot it. And I got there, and I started you know, shooting this episode, and on day two, they're like, we like what you're doing. Are you available for another one? And that helped me uh, uh, break this back of, of getting asked back because so much about TV, when you're looking at directors, is like how many episodes have they done of a show? If they're asked back, it supposedly tells you something about how they got along with people and did they do a good job. Uh, and... Really, I think it was through my relationship with them. I'd gotten some chances to, to do, like, because I was doing a bunch of HBO stuff, to do, like, Hong and Entourage. But when they went on to Community, they brought me on. And and that really helped, you know, get more. Yeah, and you did a lot of episodes of yeah, Community at that yeah. time. I, I loved doing that show. <laughs> Such a great show. What do you think a, a TV director can bring to a project to really make it pop because you know the, the, you know they always say you know the writers yeah. control tv in a certain yeah. sense so as a director what do you feel like your primary job is i think my job is to is just as with a movie or anything is just tell the story and service the story and that means getting the best performances possible and and telling the story in in a way that's um using the camera and 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 making for an interesting viewing and i you know what i like to do is um uh i very much um you know i go in very respectful of the writers but also you know trying to start a conversation with them about the material and and um uh 
helping it to realize itself, you know, whether that means, um, you know, how we approach scenes or how, you know, we approach the whole uh, uh, um, episode, uh, uh, both in terms of, like, making it so we can make it from a production standpoint, but also, like, finding what's more funny or what's more emotional or what's more interesting or what's more... Um, uh, you know, and and some shows are more open to that than than others, and some shows just you know here's the script, just go shoot it. But in in each case, I'm always going to try to get the best performance, best performances I can, and uh, uh, tell the story in the most interesting way I can. I mean, I, I kind of like had a little thing like it was a secret to myself that I wouldn't share with anybody, which was my goal was to try to make the best episode of that show's season I've been lucky because a lot of I, I, I had success there's always been some shows that like didn't ask me back um, I don't you know you're gonna you're gonna run into both I think yeah. in a directing career how is it um, uh, different I mean now you're doing a pilot the show yeah. you're doing currently is yeah, that done, a very I've different done, process done, this, like in the last few years I've done four pilots Easy. I did Kingdom Fear of the Walking Dead, then Recon, and then this one. Because in pilots, you're as the director, you're really yeah. defining the whole visual style mm -hmm. that other directors are going to come on and try to emulate. Yeah. So does is that does that feel very different as opposed to jumping in directing you know an episode in the middle of the season? Yeah, it's different uh, for those very things you mentioned. It's different because nobody knows yet what's going to work, or even if the show will work. You are bringing. You know, as I said, even on the episodes, I'm trying to bring a filmmaker's perspective to it and and shoot a movie. You know what I mean? I whether it's a half an hour or an hour, I'm always thinking of it as a movie. Like this makes it like a movie. Let's make it cinematic. Uh, but in, in in when you're coming on to a show, certain things have already been defined. You know, in terms of like, you know, who your who your personnel is, your your camera people, your what the sets look like. Um, what people are wearing who your cast is yeah. you know when you do a pilot you're doing it from scratch you're casting it you're 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 deciding what the look of the show is going to be the feeling uh um and and there's um you're, you're you're venturing into new ground and so it is satisfying for me it's hard uh uh there's there's definitely a lot of challenges to doing a, a pilot um uh and there's a lot at stake. There's definitely more at stake than with an episode, you know. But um, uh, you know, I think um, uh, it's been very exciting for me. So, lastly, um, yeah. I was just curious Sorry. if you could. Oh no, I yeah. was just curious if you could share uh, one more interesting Milos Forman story. <laughs> I can't. I'm always fascinated by him. Oh, man. There's certain people in the world that I feel like they should be just like reach a certain status where people just give them like Neil Foreman should be endowed with being able to make a movie anytime he wants. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, it's unfortunate think, we haven't seen a movie. Right? It should be like just like you know Peter Weir. It's like they should please. The world needs more of your movies. Like just go every year. Here's a check from Donald Trump. Yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll share you a very funny one. 
I have a, quite a few Foreman stories, but so one of the I'll be honest that one of the first this this the second time that I went to meet with him, we were. Uh, I thought maybe I can, because I'm not sure about this whole camp. Maybe I could convince him, like let's maybe write something else. <laughs> Maybe we don't have to go to Japan. I don't have to go through hell camp, you know. So I, I said, you know, can, can we meet? And I, I, he had, he had an apartment in in New York, but he lived out in this farmhouse in Connecticut. And uh, uh, I had to take a bus up there and uh, uh, got to his place. And he lived in the barn. The barn had been converted. This old eighteenth century barn. It was beautiful. It was really cool, and it uh, been converted to this, you know, his, where he lived. And uh, uh, we go to sit down. Uh, he had like a seating area with a, a leather couch and a couple of leather chairs, beautiful leather couches, leather chairs. And so we started talking about things, and I'm like thinking, okay, I have a bunch of pitches for him. And I noticed that. Um, on the side of his chair, of his arm, uh, the arm of the chair, there was like, the leather was a different color, it was like kind of dark, uh, like a dark circle. Um, but we're talking, we're talking, and all of a sudden uh, I hear this noise on the screen door, this scratching sound, kind of patient scratching sound. And he's like, oh, excuse me, just a minute, it's, a, it's um, Oh God! How can I forget? Zemon. Yeah, he goes. You hear the scratching sound. He said, "Just a minute, this Zemon. That's my 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 dog." And he goes over, and he opens the screen door, and this beautiful black lab comes in, and Milos goes, and he sits down, and back in the chair, and we're talking, and he's telling me some very important things and meanwhile the dog kind of gets up on its hind legs and puts its four uh four legs over the arm of the chair onto Milos's lap and starts licking Milos's face and Milos is just talking straight through it you know telling me really interesting stories and really important stuff and the dog's licking away and licking away and all of a sudden the dog starts humping the chair <laughs> And I'd see, like, the little pink pistol come out. <laughs> and the dog's humping away, licking Milos on the face, and Milos just keeps talking. And the dog finally comes and gets off and walks away. And Milos looks at me and sees me noticing it, and he says, I have to allow him what little pleasure he can have in life. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah uh, well, I think that's a good uh, point to end yes. on right there allow well, your dogs you so their pleasure in life <laughs> yeah thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast and remember you can subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes and Stitcher we'll see you next time